Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Please read with me the verses in bold. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I bring uh, greetings from Pastor Daniel, our co-pastor Daniel's preaching in Fremont uh, this morning. Fremont uh, has a sister church that we are supporting and helping to plant there, and he's, uh, you are giving him to them today. Thank you. The question is when, when, question mark. It's a question about timing. Timing is everything, right? The difference between a buzzer-beating championship win and a heartbreaking loss is timing. It can be the difference between an incredible comedian and a pretty mediocre storyteller. If you believe everything that you see in romantic comedies, then clearly timing is the difference between meeting your lifelong soulmate and passing a stranger like a ship in the night. When? The question is when. It's a question of timing. And and questions about timing loom large over the human struggle around belief, around belief in God and belief in his goodness. When? When will this or that happen? Will it happen? Olivia, my wife, and I were married for nine years before God answered our prayers to have a child. There are some people in this room for whom the answer to that question, that prayer, or the answer to other prayers like uh, praying for a spouse or uh, some other hoped-for life outcome have yet to be answered or never are answered the way that they'd hoped. I visited a woman this week, and uh, she's home on hospice care, uh, palliative care, preparing to see Jesus. And she's ready. She's been ready, apparently, but apparently the time has not yet come. When? When? 
We see injustice in the world. We, we see powerless people exploited. We, we encounter unexplainable suffering, and we wonder why God doesn't step in and do something. When is he going to do something about these things? And the, in a lot of ways, we're wondering about timing, right? When? If he is good, when will he do something? Uh, when is he going to keep his promise to wipe away every tear from every eye? When is he going to keep his promise to judge the wicked? His promise to restore people and to restore his creation to himself? When? When is one of the questions that the psalmists in the book of uh, the prayers of the Bible, in the book of Psalms, they they wrestle with when. Psalm 13 begins like this. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? And the sentiment of the end of the scriptures, the, the second to the last verse in the Bible from the Apostle John in the book of Revelation says, come Lord Jesus, when are you coming? Let's, let's finish this thing. When? It's the question that hanging in the air when Jesus tells the story of the persistent widow that we read this morning. The context is that the Pharisees have been asking Jesus when questions, asking about when the kingdom of God would come. They're asking the same question that many of us are asking, the same question that some of us are getting tired of asking. How long? Oh Lord, how long? How long should we keep praying for justice? How long should we keep praying for comfort? How long should we keep praying for mercy? Keep believing that God's timing is still perfect. And when should we just throw up our hands and give up? The passage this morning begins like this. It says that Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. You can call it a parable. You can call it the parable of the persistent widow. Or you could call it the, the parable of the unjust judge. But this morning, I want to I look at each of those characters and try to understand why, uh, what Jesus is trying to teach us about God's character and his posture towards our prayers when we're saying, how long? Oh, Lord. And then I, I want to ask two burning questions, two characters and two burning questions. First, the parable of the persistent widow. Who is this woman that Jesus is talking about? We don't have any specifics, really. We don't know where she lives. We don't know who her husband was. We don't know what the timing of her widowhood is. I think I made that word up, widowhood. We don't know if she's a young woman who's recently widowed or an old lady who's been without a husband for a long time. We don't know. We know she's a widow. And that means she's without standing by rule of law in the, in the world that she lives in. She's unable to own property. She's unlikely to be able to provide for herself financially. She's unable to testify for herself in court. Literally, she has no voice with a judge who's the other character in the, in the story. Uh, she's one of the most vulnerable members of society. And therefore, according to Old Testament law, 
entitled to special protection. Psalm 68 says that one of God's names is father of the fatherless and protector of widows. It's his name. And we know uh, from Jesus' story that she's experienced some kind of injustice. Uh, and it's at the hands of another person because she says to the judge, give me justice against my adversary. Somebody's done something to her. She's the living embodiment of exploitation. Somebody who is powerless, who's been taken advantage of. Uh, she has been taken advantage of by some opportunist out there, some kind of, you know, the kind of person that calls elderly folks on fixed incomes and scams them out of their retirement. Who knows what's happened to her, but what we know is legally she has no recourse. She's got no voice. She's got no standing. No one to come to her offense, no ability to hire a lawyer to talk to a judge for her. And so when she cries out, give me justice, we're supposed to recognize a couple of things. We're supposed to recognize that what she's asking for is what God has promised to give her as a widow. Yeah, what we're supposed to recognize is that any judge in Israel who's worth their salt knows Deuteronomy 27, 19, which says, Cursed is anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So this is a woman who knew what God had promised her. She knew what she was entitled to. But she didn't have standing, and she didn't have money, and she didn't have power or protection, but she had persistence. And she wasn't afraid to use it. And it says that, that uh, Jesus says that she just kept coming. She just kept coming to the judge and saying, give me justice. Give me justice. She just kept coming. Give me justice. Commentators would tell us that what Jesus is describing here is an example of prevailing prayer. Prevailing and persist, persisting in prayer for those things that you know God has promised in his word, but that you've not yet realized in your experience. Prevailing. And the Old Testament is replete with examples of prayer that calls out to God repeatedly and in a sustained way. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7 says, You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and, and makes her the praise of earth. It fits with the way that the psalmist often pray. If you read through the Psalms again and again, they go about reminding God of his promises. They remind him who he is and what he's promised to do. And then they keep telling him about what he has done and what he says he will do. We keep asking him on the basis of who he is to be who he is and does and do what he says he'll do. 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this. He says about prevailing prayer, give him no rest. Give God no rest. Give yourself no rest. Keep on. Bombard God. Bombard heaven until he answers. A persistent widow. A parable of an unjust judge. The other character is a judge who Jesus says neither feared God 
nor respected men. Here is a judge, someone in a position of legal authority, who lacks the two most basic qualities required for true justice. Number one, he doesn't fear God. He has no moral standard for justice. He has no belief that there is any objective morality or moral lawgiver. There's no right and wrong outside of what he decides. Right and wrong are determined by him. We might guess based on, uh, we might guess that he decides what's right and wrong based on what is most politically advantageous for himself. Or maybe whatever makes him the most popular with his constituents. Maybe he decides in cases based on whoever, whoever is before who, him who is able to benefit him the most. This should sound pretty familiar. Partly because we know people that operate like this and partly because we live in a postmodern world, and this is a very postmodern way of thinking, being suspicious of anyone's judgment, uh, believing that there's actually no moral, obje- no, uh, nothing objectively moral, no objective morality, no God, no lawgiver, no standards. And so uh, that just leaves us with wondering what everybody, everybody's motivation is uh, for the decisions that they make and the way that they interact. They must be just interested in their own promotion. Now, of course, in our country, even in our postmodern moment, and in every country we like to think, I hope, that there are plenty of judges who don't fear God, but we hope love people. They believe that uh, what they're doing is for the good of others. They're trying to watch out uh, for other people or for the powerless. Uh, But Jesus says that this guy says to himself, I don't fear God and I don't care about people. This guy's not even pretending. He is in in it for himself. He only does what is in his own best interest. And yet, verse 5 says, yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. He didn't care about the law of God. Doesn't believe in objective morality. He has no, uh, ob- he has no obedience or uh, he- he's, got, he- he's got no, uh, he doesn't care about a law that says he's required to protect her because she's a widow. He didn't believe in that law. It's an outdated social construct. He didn't care about her safety or her personhood or her rights. At first, it seems like he figured he could just ignore her and she would go away. Um, maybe he could let her get buried in bureaucracy, right? Wait in the, in the waiting room at the courthouse long enough, she'll just give up. <laughs> but she wore him down. She wore him out, and he gave in. Let's be clear. Jesus is not saying, this guy found God and did what was right. He just figured out the best way to get rid of her. Let's just give her what what she wanted. 
Now, some parables make their point by drawing a positive comparison between a key character in the story and God. For instance, the father running out to meet his prodigal son in the parable of the prodigal sons is a direct correlation between the loving, long-suffering patience of God the Father running out to meet you and I. Those kind of parables that make easy, uh, direct, positive comparisons get preached by Daniel, and then he goes to Fremont. (laughs) This is not one of those parables. In fact, Jesus makes his point in this parable in exactly the opposite way. The point is the contrast between a loving, merciful, just God and an unjust judge who is actually everything, everything he stands for is is against everything that God is. And yet, nonetheless, this judge does the right thing because of the persistence of the widow. And Jesus says, how much more God who wants to protect the widow, wants to justice and mercy, stands for all that is good and right. Jesus makes a similar kind of comparison in Luke chapter 11 when he says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give to those who ask him? So the parable makes the comparison and then, and then asks a rhetorical question. Hear what the righteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Even a corrupt and godless judge responds to persistence, Jesus says. How much more can we expect from God who loves mercy and justice and is the protector of the fatherless and the widow. So here's my two burning questions. Question number one, based on the fact that this is who God is, uh, he loves mercy and justice, the protector of the fatherless and the widow. If that's who he is, then why is this necessary? Why is it necessary that he instruct us to persist and prevail in prayer? Why does it work like this? If God doesn't operate like an unjust judge, swaying to a bribe or changing his mind so that we'll stop bothering him, if that's not the way that he operates, if God is truly who the book of Hebrews says in chapter 13, the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means he isn't changing. It means he's not changing his mind and his timing, his plan isn't changing either. It's already perfect. God has decided how and when he will dispense his mercy and justice. And if that's decided, why keep asking? Why is this necessary? And yet the Bible urges us to pray to God in sustained and in a repeated way for his blessing. Why would that be necessary if if the the goal of those prayers is not to somehow change God's mind? Olivia and I, my wife and I, sometimes lament 
that our kids didn't grow up in a big church with a busy children's ministry. We sometimes ask each other, wonder together if they missed out. Because when they were little, we were church planting, and on most Sundays for years, they were the only kids in the room. We had two and then three kids in our kids' ministry, you know, <laughs> when we had a third child. <laughs> These days, part of our liturgy, right? So part of our worship service, our service order, is uh, when all the kids stand up and we pray for them, the Lord be with you as you worship, and they say, and also with you, and then off they go to kids' ministry. Well, there was a time when part of our liturgy, literally every week, was uh, when we would say uh, it was kids' time, and then my three-year-old son Asher would scream and cry and hide under a pew. Somebody would have to drag him out and take him to kids' time. And he did it every week because he knew that it was just going to be him and his sister in a musty room, right, with no other friends. But every Sunday for five years, give or take, before church, we prayed as a family. We gathered and we bribed them with treats. And we prayed that God would send more families with kids. And when you pray for five years and you're only five years old, you're praying for your whole life. <laughs> we did everything we could think of to make it a church that was family friendly. We, we did everything that we could think of to make it a church that was kid fun. And there were seasons, short seasons, when other families would show up with a few other kids and then they would leave. But for the most part, for, for the most part of five years, um, I remember tucking my kids into bed every Sunday night, wondering, how long, oh Lord? When? And thinking, what am I teaching my kids? That God doesn't listen? That he doesn't care that you're all alone? A lot has transpired since then, of course. Uh, but let me read to you. Uh, so I get a text message at the end, like after church every Sunday, and it's the attendance. And this is the text message from last week. Eight youth, 29 kids, and 15 babies. <laughs> the 16th century American preacher, Jonathan Edwards, preached a sermon on Genesis 32 called, and this is the title, The way to obtain the blessing of God is not to let him go except to bless you. Why preach anything more? There's the whole thing. <laughs> he gives three reasons in that sermon why God invites us to, pre to prevail in prayer like this. Three reasons why, although God is unchanging, he chooses to operate in this way. Edwards says, number one, 
God wants us to do it this way. He wants us to prevail and to persist in prayer so that our hearts lose our self-sufficiency. If God's, if God's blessings just came on us without, any, without a lot of prayer, he says, we'd be hard-hearted. We'd be judgmental. We'd assume that a good and comfortable life is simply, quote, the right of all sensible folks like us. We'd start thinking that we deserve this because we worked for it. Because there's something shiny and beautiful about us. Let me tell you, my kids know that we didn't do this. They watched us work hard. They watched us try and fail. God did this. Second, Jonathan Edwards says, God wants us to do it so that our hearts will be prepared to rejoice in him as the author of the blessings that we receive in our life. If God's blessings just came upon us without a lot of prayer, he says, we would not perceive him as the source of everything that we need. When we don't pray, we're, Jonathan Edwards says, when we don't pray, we're actually robbing ourselves of joy because we don't realize uh, how good God is. I'll tell you what, I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff that happens on a Sunday morning, but it, as you can tell, one of the most joyful moments for me every Sunday is when kids say, and also with you, and then kick stuff over and run to the <laughs> back of the... God is so good. Third, Jonathan Edwards says, when we prevail in prayer corporately, when we do this together, then answered prayer creates community. It knits our hearts together. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's some, pro, some slick programming things that I wish my kids uh, would have had. You know, there's great things happening in big churches with good Sunday schools, and I'm jealous that my kids weren't in some of those places. But I'll tell you what, my 15-year-old is back there right now leading a class full of the answers to her prayers. When we pray together for some individual or family, that person feels support and solidarity that can't be given in any other way. We, God binds our hearts together when we pray together knowing that we're asking for what he's promised to give. Question number two, burning question number two. Why is God taking so long? I certainly think that you can ask that about the answers to smaller prayers, like why aren't there any kids in our church? Uh, but I'm particularly interested in the answer to the bigger when question. And I think that's the question that the Pharisees were asking as well. How long, O oh Lord? When is he going to keep his promise to wipe away every tear? His promise to judge the wicked? His promise to restore people in his creation? The Pharisees were saying, God, when is the kingdom of God coming? That's the question that they were asking when Jesus told the parable. And the answer has something to do with one of the most uncomfortable words in this passage. In verse uh, 7 and 8, it says, and will, not give, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. 
his elect. The biblical doctrine of election means that God knew us before we came to know him. It means that God knows everyone who will come to know his salvation through Christ. Everyone, ever. He knows what that number is, and he'll know when that number is complete. And on that day, apparently, uh, one, apparently that day has not yet come. And two, when that day does come, uh, it says that, that the kingdom of God will come. He is, until then, patiently waiting to show his mercy and grace to more of us. He knows there's more people in this room who have not yet uh, opened up their, the hands of control in their own life and said, I believe, or God is good, or give me justice. I'll trust you for it. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter puts it this way. Second Peter chapter 3, he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that, what, that all would come to repentance. But then the day of the Lord will come. In some ways that this puts followers of Jesus followers of Christ in almost the same exact situation that the widow in Jesus' parable found herself. She knew that as a widow, she was entitled to a certain kind of protection and expectation from the law of God. She knew what God had promised, and she was asking for it. She knew that God had promised to protect her and give her justice. And as a follower of Jesus, we look at the scripture and we rejoice that through faith in Christ's sacrifice, God has promised to clear the penalty of death against us because Christ died on the cross in our place. We know that when we look at his resurrection, uh, that God has promised to give us a, a place in his kingdom, a, a resurrected life because what, Christ, what is Christ is given to us. Jesus came into the world once for the salvation of sinners like you and like me. And the scripture says that he's going to come again to bring justice, to set things right, to wipe away every tear, to, to restore the exploited. And so when we pray, come Lord Jesus, or when we pray, how long, O oh Lord, it's either a wonderful, safe thing to pray because we know like the widow that we are entitled to God's mercy and grace, or it's a dangerous thing to pray if you don't understand yourself to be a part of that number. Do you understand 
that by faith in Christ you've been forgiven and restored and protected by the work of Jesus. It's available to all. But praying for justice without being in Christ is a scary, dangerous thing. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? But as believers, we're invited to bombard heaven with prayers like, how long, O Lord? Knowing that what we're praying for, God has promised. And that which he has promised, uh, he will give to all who are in Christ. To give as soon as everyone, as that number is complete and is safely in his care. Uh, that he will wipe away every tear and make all things new. And so this morning as we come to the table, I, I want to invite you. I want to invite you, one, if uh, you have never wrestled with God. That's the context of Jonathan Edwards' uh, scripture. His, his sermon was, not letting God go until he bless you, right? Uh, if you never wrestled with God and said, show me who you are, uh, tell me about forgiveness. How does this work? Who is Jesus? We're saying this morning that uh, all signs point to the fact that he's been waiting for you to do that. He's been patiently waiting for you Christ died on the cross and is offering himself to you.